1: Listener supported, WNYC
2: Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. All
3: right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening. to
4: Radio Lab. Lab.
3: Radio Lab from <laughs>
5: WNYC. See? Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is. Gene. G, Radio Lab Radiolab miniseries. I'm Pat Walters. And I'm Rachel Cusick. And uh, today, we're going to go looking for intelligence in what might seem like one of the more obvious places. right over here. Okay.
6: Um, do you need water? To go to yeah,
1: yeah okay. water's okay. Great. And the story starts with this guy. Yeah, my name is Stephen Levy. I'm an editor at large at Wired Magazine.
6: Thank you so much for coming in. Um, basically, I guess... Where did this all start for you? So in
1: 1978, I was working for a magazine called New Jersey Monthly.
6: Steve was young, fresh out of school.
1: It was my first real job in journalism. Offices were in a suburb outside Princeton, New Jersey. Sort of an office park, a very bland set of offices with cubicles and, you know, really Dunder (laughs) Mifflin-ish. Steve says it was a typical, boring,
5: entry-level job.
1: Until this one day. We had a new editor. It got interesting. Yeah. He called me in his office and said, I want you to find Einstein's brain. And I thought, What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Were you like, that sounds exciting, or were you like, I don't know. I thought I thought that that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. That sounds pretty cool. (laughs) You know, I had been working on a piece about the psychology of the New Jersey driver, Mm. right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. right.
5: Really stiff right. I mean, I literally
1: did a service piece about racquetball, which was a big trend then. <laughs> <laughs> this is better.
5: Now, the reason the editor assigned him this story is there had been these rumors going back years that when Einstein died back in 1955, moments after his death,
1: someone had literally stolen his brain and run off with it. Sort of an urban legend. Hmm. Einstein's brain is somewhere. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, you know, the Russians have it. And they're trying to clone Einstein. (laughs) and, (laughs) And Steve's editor just wanted him to get to the bottom of it. He literally said to me, I want you to find Einstein's brain.
6: What did you know about Einstein at that point and his brain? Well,
1: I, you know, I, what I knew about Einstein is what the, anyone on the street would know about Einstein, essentially. You know, there's the, this guy with the funny hair <laughs> it, it did relativity, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that was.
6: Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 what he would quickly learn—
1: Something to do with the atom bomb.
6: After a little bit of reading, is that in the early 20th century, Einstein pretty much rewrote the way that we thought the universe worked.
3: Einstein, brilliant physicist and theoretical mathematician. A scientific giant.
6: He said that mass is equivalent to energy.
3: E equals MC
5: squared.
6: Which led to the atomic bomb.
4: The all-shattering devastation in which was born the atomic age.
5: He also said time and space could both bend, which led to the discovery of black holes and like a million other things. He
3: enabled man to embark at last on the total adventure.
6: And it didn't take long before Einstein just became a symbol.
1: Do you think you're smarter than Einstein? For. I said, no, no, ma. No. Intelligence.
7: Space and time.
4: Einstein! For. Energy and motion. Genius. I am not a genius. I'm not Einstein. You don't have to
5: be an Einstein to know it's. Motion. Little Einstein! What am I supposed to do? So, that was Steve's assignment.
1: Find the brain of the guy whose name basically means genius. And he said, by the way, this is going to be our cover in August. A few weeks, six weeks away or something. Didn't have a lot of time.
6: How do you even begin looking for the brain of a guy that died decades ago? You
1: know, there there was this thing called the library. And
6: (laughs) (laughs) So Steve knew that Einstein lived in Um, Princeton and died in Princeton.
1: Uh, April 1955.
6: So he headed over to the and local public library, pulls up Einstein's the newspaper archive.
1: And look at the microfilm.
6: And he finds this article. Written
1: a couple days after Einstein died. And it said, Einstein's brain to be preserved for study. And it talked about, yeah, there's going to be a study of Einstein's brain. And, you know, they're going to have a press conference about it.
6: So he pulls up the next day's paper, thinking there'll be a big front-page story about this press conference.
1: And nothing. Crickets. Nothing. There was no press conference. Oh, it didn't God. happen. No. So then he thinks, okay, that's 23 years ago. Yeah, the brain studied. Something's got to be published, like by scientists. I went through all sorts of scientific periodical guides. No papers. I mean, I really Really? look hard. And eventually he realizes that little newspaper article. And that was literally, that was the last thing written about Einstein's brain.
5: But there was one clue in that little newspaper article. A name. The name of the guy who was supposed to hold that press conference that never happened. Dr. Thomas Harvey. Who, it seemed... In addition to being the guy who didn't hold that press conference, was also the pathologist who would have done the autopsy on Einstein.
6: So, the next stop on Steve Search.
1: The Princeton Hospital.
6: The place Einstein died and where supposedly this Harvey guy worked at.
1: And I went there. I found, I talked to the vice president and uh, I asked him about the pathologist, this guy, Dr. Thomas Harvey. Where's Dr. Harvey? Hospital guy says he left here a long time
5: ago. And then Steve's like, "What about the brain? I heard the brain got taken. Is it here at the hospital?" And he didn't know anything.
1: I have to talk to Doctor Harvey.
5: So, what do you do to find Harvey?
1: So, you know, so looking for a person in 1978, there's no Google. You know, there's no Facebook. There's no LinkedIn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's a lot of places, a lot of cities. You know, each <laughs> every city had uh, you know a, a phone book. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't look at every phone book. Yeah, I eventually figured one place I might go is the American Medical Association. Figures this guy Harvey
5: was a doctor. Maybe they have his contact info. So
1: I called them up. You know, said I'm really am trying to find this Dr. Thomas Harvey, uh, Thomas S. Harvey. I knew his middle name. And this very kindly woman, you know, uh, looked up stuff and then told me there is a Thomas S. Harvey in Wichita, Kansas. So he calls
5: directory assistance in Wichita and says, do you guys have a number for a Thomas Harvey? They said yes. He asks, is that number listed? And they said yes. And they gave
1: me his phone number. And I took a deep breath and dialed the phone number. Back then, if someone wasn't there, it would just ring and ring. And you'd hang up and that would be it. Because pre-answering machine. But he picked up the phone. Uh-huh. And I said, is, is this... Dr. Harvey, and he said, yes. And I said, is this the Dr. Harvey who worked at Princeton Hospital in 1955? And there was this pause. Like, I figured, you yeah, know, well, wait, wait, it's sort of a yes or no question, right? <laughs> and, uh, there was a pause. So, like, he was almost debating
2: mm.
1: whether to own mm. up to this. And finally, he said, yes. <laughs> um, in retrospect, maybe it was a little the jig is up. And he said, well, I don't know if I could help you. And I said, well, I'd just like to talk to you. Mm-hmm. He said, well, and he, you know, was sort of, you know, not saying yes or no. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming out there to talk to you. So I booked a ticket for Wichita, Kansas.
6: Steve hops on a plane to Kansas. He spends the night. And then the next morning, he wakes up, gets a cab, and goes over to Harvey's lab.
1: I rang the bell or whatever, and Dr. Harvey came to open the door for me. What did he look like? He looked like, you know, the guy who would be your pediatrician. You know, this kindly-looking guy in his 60s, I guess. Uh, he's wearing a lab coat. And I remember very clearly he had in his pocket, one of those pens that could write in three colors, you know, red, green, blue. And, um, he took me back to the back of the facility uh, to his office which was basically a glassed in cubicle and with a desk and a chair, some shelves and some cardboard boxes behind the chair. And I sat down and we talked. Now at this point, Harvey hadn't admitted to
5: anything, but Steve had a feeling. A definite feeling. Yeah, you, you, know, you
1: could tell he's very cautious, very guarded. You know, can I asking every way to try to figure out where's the brain? I said and <laughs> you know, can I asked him a few times, you know, where's the brain? Mm-hmm. And he really didn't want to answer that. And then i finally I just say, Well, do do we even need pictures of it. Um. And then he sort of broke down. When I asked, you know, can maybe cause he says I was so frustrated, mm-hmm. because you know, I was saying, no pictures, even. And, and, and he's sort of like sagged a little. So he gets up and he walks behind me, and there was sort of like a beer cooler near where he was.
0: Hmm. And I'm
1: thinking, is it in the beer cooler? No, he keeps walking <laughs> past there and goes behind me to where one of the cardboard boxes is. And he pulls out these two jars. And in one of the jars, there are these pieces of. Biomass floating in there <laughs> that are clearly brain stuff. And I'm like staring at this thing and I'm like thunderstruck. I mean, it was like a jolt, you know? This was amazing. I mean, you know, you could hear you know the the chorus of angels singing oh you know, <laughs> einstein's brain <laughs> yeah i'm taking this in and then, like this is the brain that changed the world and to see that brain was a moving experience actually i have to say i i i, I, get, I gotten this i of something. Of what, though? of something big, of something, you know, that, of a mystery.
8: It followed from the special
3: theory of relativity.
5: In this episode, that mass and energy are good. we're going to try to untangle that mystery. But
3: different manifestations of the same thing
5: what can the brain of one of the greatest geniuses that humanity has ever produced... A
3: somewhat unfamiliar conception for the average mind.
5: Like, what can that brain tell us?
2: Well, I'm just going to say for the record that I think that's silly. And <laughs> I think that brain is just a whole... It's just a... It's just <laughs> Who invited you? <laughs> I, mean, I do not think...
6: come in here but with I, your
2: I egg am,
8: sandwich.
2: <laughs> yeah. I am...
9: Go <laughs> bring my egg sandwich to
2: this. I... Uh, I would just like to declare my bias that I don't think there's anything special about his brain. Anything? Not even... Well, I al- mean, he, he was nothing. clearly a you genius. Nothing. So but what like, is that? Where there's <laughs> something about the idea that his genius is tied to the physical structure of his brain that makes me itchy. Hmm. Literally, that's the physical sensation I have. Yeah. I start to itch.
5: Yeah. I think you're dismissing it too soon. I think there's more to it than you suspect.
2: Hmm. All right. Well, let me ask you a more basic question. What's the the fellow's name again? Thomas Harvey. How did he end up with that brain to begin with?
10: Well, um, you know,
5: to to, to answer your question... um, This is Dr. Fred Lepore. He's a neurologist, also wrote a book about Einstein. He's one of the people we talked to to answer that very question. And he says you got to go back to the winter of 1955. Einstein was living on borrowed time. He's 76 years old, retired, living in Princeton, and he gets sick starts to feel this pain in his abdomen.
10: It was so much, it almost felt like a gallbladder attack. Turned out to be way worse than that. Ultimately, he had an uh, an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Frank Glenn, who was a neurosurgeon, at Cor- not a neurosurgeon, a surgeon at Cornell, came down. Ready to operate. But Einstein basically said, look, I, you know, my time is up. I, I, I will die. I think he used, I will die elegantly. He knew he was, mm-hmm. and that was a brave thing to say because he was in pain
6: and eventually in the spring of 1955.
3: Einstein, entered the hospital Friday, died this morning after refusing surgery, which it turned out would not have helped him recover from a ruptured artery.
10: As the story goes, in the early morning hours of April 18th, he muttered a couple of incomprehensible words, incomprehensible to his nurse, who didn't speak German, and then in the early morning hours, he was
5: found dead. Now, Tom Harvey, our guy, was the chief pathologist at Princeton Hospital, His job was to do autopsies. And that night, April 18th, 1955, he's at home, sleeping, and he gets a call.
9: Yeah, I think the phone call came sometime before dawn, and it was Einstein's personal physician who called him to let him know that Einstein's son had given permission for an autopsy to be performed on his father. This is Carolyn Abraham. Science journalist, author of Possessing Genius, the story of the bizarre odyssey of Einstein's brain. Harvey
5: actually died in 2007, but before he did, Carolyn spent some time with him and got his take on that day.
9: He, you know, gets himself ready and he remembered it was a really nice morning. Uh, Spring was in the air and, you know, things were turning green and he was walking towards what he realized was going to be a major opportunity in his professional life. He got to that hospital, and he got to his pathology lab, and someone uh, that morning had already placed Einstein on the autopsy table. She says he walked into the
5: room. Einstein's laying there, flat on the table and he picks up a scalpel and
10: you know he opened the abdomen and he saw it was full of blood from the aneurysm so he established his
5: cause of death did a routine examination of the heart but then he did something that was not in the script he removed the top of the skull cut a bunch of cranial nerves and arteries and he took the brain out and then he put the brain in a jar and walked out so he literally just stole
2: the brain out of einstein's skull just stole it? Yeah, which is pretty gross. Isn't that a crime? Probably. History has not been kind to
10: Thomas S. Harvey.
9: But in Tom Harvey's uh, estimation, and he actually put it this way in our conversations once, as that he would have felt ashamed if he didn't take it. Ashamed. Uh, here was ashamed because here was this opportunity to learn something about sort of the biological underpinnings of intelligence, of genius, you know, from arguably, you know, certainly one of the greatest scientific minds of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And to not study it would have been um, negligent.
5: According to Carolyn, however misguided it might seem, Harvey says he wasn't taking the brain for himself. He was taking it for all of us, like for humanity, for science. But... Fast forward to the
10: next day. The family at this point or read on the front page of the April 19th, New York, 55 New York Times read that um, the brain was preserved for science and they were flabbergasted.
6: Well, oh, so that they, was like the first time yep. they heard of it.
10: Yeah. In the
9: paper.
6: <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. they were like the, having their yeah. Cheerios and that's how they find out.
9: Yeah. The family didn't know and didn't give permission. The,
10: the understanding, although you'll find none of this in the will, But the understanding was uh, Einstein would be cremated.
9: And his ashes scattered in a secret location so that, quote-unquote, no one could come and worship at my bones.
3: He was the first scientist to become a public figure, a legend in our times.
9: Einstein was always very uncomfortable with... The attention that celebrity brought with it.
3: Hmm.
6: He was really afraid that people were going to start to see him as something superhuman.
3: The realities of 20th century science, its power, are linked with Einstein's image.
9: It speaks to the fact that in the 20th century, science sort of displaced religion as what people put their faith in. And he was, you know, sort of its high priest. And so he didn't want his gravesite to become
10: a
6: shrine. That's why he wanted to be cremated.
10: As he was on April 18th, but Harvey kept the brain.
6: So the family, when they saw that headline, do they, do they knock on Harvey's door and yeah, they what say, they what do? the hell?
9: No, they phone the hospital. They phone Princeton Hospital, and they're very upset.
5: And eventually, uh, Hans Albert, Einstein's eldest son, gets on the phone with Tom Harvey. Now, we don't know exactly what they said to each other, You can probably imagine Hans Albert was upset, probably yelled at Tom Harvey. Tom Harvey apparently...
9: Apologized for taking it without permission. And
5: finally,
10: Harvey makes the pitch of his life. He says, you know, this is an... You know, the mind for all the ages. Uh, We're never going to get this opportunity again, and I pledge that I will do a scholarly study.
9: He made this very solemn vow to take care of this brain, to not allow it to become sort of an object of fascination. Tom Harvey told Hans Albert he'd never let the brain become a spectacle. He'd
5: honor Einstein's wishes. But if he could just study this brain, it might reveal something. The secret of human genius and creativity you
10: can't pass it up. And the son Hans Albert said yes that you you can study it. But only as long
5: as it's serious science, no spectacle.
10: So the next step that Harvey has, he's trying to craft um a, a kind of a do it yourself approach to studying a famous brain, even though he's a doctor. Harvey's not trained in in, in, in this kind of neuropathology, he learned some, but not to the degree that a, a specialist would.
9: He spends evenings taking photographs. He weighs it. He measures it. He hits some standard textbooks. Different reference guides. One of the really interesting things he did during this period, he brought this artist in to paint a portrait of Einstein's brain. Oh, Bef- really? When, when it was whole. He said he just wanted to have it, and he never did hang that that painting. Really? What and an interesting um, thing to do. I think partly it was because he knew what had to happen next, or in his estimation, what he was going to do next.
10: He's going to cut the brain into 240 sections.
9: And after
6: that, he goes across the Delaware. I love that, like he's George Washington or something. To the University
10: of Pennsylvania, where there's a technician who he had worked with.
6: He gave her some of those chunks of brain, and she slices them really thinly
10: into microscope slides, and they made 12 sets. Mm-hmm. So when the smoke clears, and I'm sorry I'm dragging this out on you, but. No, no, no this, this is, is great, this yeah. is great. The smoke clears, he's got, I'm told, 12 sets of at least 200 slides per set. And his job for the next few years is to try to take it individually to various neuropathologists who might be able to study
5: this brain. So Harvey sends out slides and photos and samples of Einstein's brain. He was trying to collaborate with experts in the field. Specialist after specialist. We don't
10: exactly know how many photographs he gave out, how many slides who he gave them to.
5: But it was a lot.
9: Despite all that effort, though, there's no record of them ever getting back to him or doing anything of importance from the few scientists I was able to contact at that time who received those pieces who were still alive, they said they didn't really know what they should be looking for, which, of course, was true. This is where Tom Harvey ran into the reality of, you know, neuroscience at that time.
3: Everything we human beings ever do, no matter how ordinary it seems... ...has a complex beginning in our brains.
9: At that point,
6: scientists had just started to figure out... Neurons. ...what neurons do, how they communicate back and forth.
7: Brain alone has 10,000 million of them.
9: Uh, they hadn't even, you know, scratched the surface of, n- of sort of the understanding of a normal brain, let alone trying to solve the mystery of genius in Einstein's brain. So years and years go by, and
10: nothing but, you know, he wouldn't give up. He knew it was of significance. He thought there was something
9: that could be learned, and he never abandoned that. And and I think at this point, Harvey began to see himself as kind of a living time capsule. (laughs) He was going to take this brain with him into the future when science would be equipped to study it properly. But in the meantime... Harvey's life
6: sort of falls apart. He has an affair, he gets divorced, and he loses his job at Princeton. And then he kind of just disappears.
5: Yeah, he does. That is, until 1978, when a young reporter from New Jersey knocked on his door Asking about a brain.
1: Got an airplane home. Mm-hmm.
6: Wait, did you call your editor or something on well, your way? Like,
1: well, it's the first thing I did when I got I went straight to my editor's house and he was like watching a basketball game. And he watched a little of the basketball game mm-hmm. and without saying anything. And finally he said, Well, did you find the brain? <laughs> and I said, Yep.
6: <laughs> That's how you tell him? That's like you, like, hold it for halftime?
1: Why would you just, like, bust <laughs> yeah, yeah, open the door? <laughs> it, was, it was this moment, yeah. <laughs> that was it. And then I had to write it. We got a great image for the cover. The, the cover line was My Search for Einstein's Brain. And then one of the people who got the press release was the AP. So when the story came out, the AP ran a thing about it. And... Bag. It was in every newspaper in the country. Johnny Carson made a joke about the brain. Oh, really? Yeah. What was the joke? Yeah. Do you remember? Something about the brain, you know, if it was really Einstein's brain, it would have been smart enough to get out of Wichita or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Harvey had people camped out in his lawn. Really? Right. Everyone wanted wow. to see the brain. It was, you know, a lot of attention. The Einstein estate went bonkers. I mean, this is exactly what they didn't
5: want to happen.
9: People came calling, there were cash offers for the brain. People all over the place started to write to him to volunteer to become its next keeper, and they offered him money. So not only did Harvey fail to come up
5: with any science about the brain, but he also broke that promise he made to the family.
6: But, because of all the attention, at least on the science side, his luck kind of changed.
1: One place that picked up the story was Science Magazine.
6: By the late 70s, neuroscience had picked up... The human brain.
3: A report of a woman who had electrodes implanted in the brain. Two
6: new
1: techniques for exploring brains have been developed.
6: For example, we figured out there were opioid receptors in the brain. Millions of these sensory receptors and had developed a treatment for Parkinson's, so scientists at this point were just slightly more equipped. And when Steve's story came out,
1: it actually kicked off real research into Einstein's brain that directly flowed from my making it public.
5: So what happens? So uh, the first thing that happens is he gets a call from this scientist named
4: my name is Marion Diamond.
5: Marion Diamond. That's a good name. Great name. She was a professor of anatomy at Berkeley,
4: and I've been teaching here for many decades.
5: She was sort of famous on campus for carrying around a hat box.
4: You get excited coming to class, <laughs> I and get
5: she excited. would. Uh,
4: How many have never seen a human brain before?
5: We begin her freshman anatomy lecture in front of all these kids right by bringing her hat box onto the table and open. And it was like a flower print <laughs> hat box. <laughs> 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 open it up and pull out this brain.
4: Because this mass only weighs three pounds. And yet it has the capacity to conceive of a universe a billion light years across.
5: Some people call her one of the founders of modern neuroscience.
4: Isn't that phenomenal? A massive protoplasm could do that.
5: So she did these studies on rats, which became very famous where she figured out that if you like put a rat in an enriched environment, so a cage with like a lot of toys, things to climb around on, and lots of other rat friends to hang out with, instead of just putting them in like the boring old normal cage, what you'll find is that their brains actually change. They'll have more of these little cells called glial cells, which um, for a long time people thought glial cells were just like the scaffolding of the brain. Like, mm-hmm. neurons were where the action was. That's where all the thinking happened. And glial cells were just like, you know, the this, this studs and mortar of the house, just mm-hmm. kind of holding everything together. Um, but around this time when Marion Diamond was doing these studies, they were starting to realize that the glial cells also had neurotransmitters flowing through them, like that they might be more important than we thought. But shortly after she publishes her rat studies, she hears about Harvey.
9: She saw, you know, a, a little piece about it in the journal Science and so she started to track down Harvey and she called him. And in
5: 1984, Harvey sends her four chunks of brain.
9: She went looking at Einstein's brain to see if there was, you know, something similar to what she had been recording in her animal experiments.
5: And she finds that compared to the average brain, Einstein had a lot of glial cells. What's what's a lot? Like twice as many? Three times as many? Well, about 70% more than the control group. But what does that even mean, though? I don't really know how to describe that, which is part of the problem. Uh, and on top of that, after she published this research, some other scientists raised questions that maybe the experimental methods weren't valid. So... Hmm, not convinced. Uh, yeah, me neither. So that's Diamond. Diamond.
6: So after Diamond, then this guy Britt Anderson comes along. And his whole thing, he studied five other adult male dead brains. Okay. So he looked at their prefrontal cortexes. And that's like where higher cognitive abilities are located. So like if you were going to take a test, that's the part of your brain that's going to be activated. Uh-huh. And he found that compared to the other brains that he had, the neurons in Einstein's brain were more tightly packed there.
2: Huh. So his neurons were more tightly packed in a certain part of his brain.
6: Yeah. Did he have more neurons at that part
2: or less neurons?
6: Same number, roughly. They were just more crowded together.
2: What does that say?
6: I kind of take that as like Einstein's problem-solving abilities could go much more quickly and efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Britt Anderson, the guy who found this, he dismisses himself in a way. He found a difference, but he also was quick to say like, we just have one of these brains. He said, listen, you know, uh, he,
9: this was always going to be a an N of 1 in any experiment.
6: He's kind of like the middle
9: child of all these researchers. He made like the smallest splash. But it is through Britt Anderson that Tom Harvey hears about Sandra Whittleson in Canada. And that was like the biggest splash of them all. Really?
6: Yes. So Sandra Whittleson in the fall of 1995, she ends up getting this fax.
9: A one-page fax from a man by the name of Thomas Harvey. And the fax basically says, hey, I heard about your research. Would you like to study the brain of Albert Einstein?
5: It almost seems like you would suspect it to be a prank. Yeah. Like I picture it just being that sentence <laughs> yeah. on a fax yeah. page.
9: Exactly, but you know, obviously um, she facts back yes, and so- Harvey Albert hops in
6: the car the with the brain, brains in the trunk actually, the and drives north. To bring, to bring the
9: brain to Canada. <laughs> And the reason he was so excited to have her look at the brain. What had really caught his attention was the fact that she had this collection of normal brains. She'd
6: been doing this long-term before and after study. So years before, she had gotten this group together. Basically, like, they signed up. They, like, took IQ tests. They did all these things while they were still alive. Oh. She knew their health history. And then when they died, she got to study their brains to see, like, a before and after picture of these people's brains.
2: Were these all smart people?
6: So she had a mix, but the ones that she compared Einstein's brain to were all high IQ men. Hmm. So she makes this comparison, Einstein's brain versus these other brains in her collection, and she writes this article.
10: And the gist of the article— was that he had unusual parietal lobes. Unusual parietal lobes. The parietal lobes of Einstein's brain were anatomically uh, exceptional, if you will.
6: Where is the parietal lobes again? It's kind of like where your baseball cap was, like mainly... Is not
5: it sort of like top of your head, but back? Or if you had a yarmulke. Yes, exactly. A yarmulke.
6: Yes. And this area of your brain, this is where all of your sensory information comes in. And because of that, it's also where your visuospatial awareness is located. Hmm. So, like, the way that you orient yourself in the world is, like, mostly located in that part of your brain. Like, if you were to close your eyes right now and you think, where are my hands, where are my knees, where are my feet? Well, you have an internal mental map that's telling you where those things are, and that's your parietal lobe doing that. Anyhow, so what was different about this part of Einstein's brain is that if you imagine the brain to look like a walnut, which is kind of the only way that I imagine the brain, there are like all these grooves and crevices. And there's this one groove, like a groovy groove, like a deeper crevice called the sylvian fissure. In Einstein's brain, it was shorter than the rest of ours. And apparently that's very strange.
9: When she described it to me, she said it was, you know, to see this unique pattern in Einstein's brain— was as striking as seeing a face with the eyebrows beneath the eyes. And Sandra
6: Whittleson proposed that maybe because this crevice was a little bit shorter, the electricity in this part of his brain could go much more quickly. Oh, because they didn't have to travel around the to. Yeah, it didn't have to take like a detour over a ditch. It could just go, (laughs) pew. So that was... this
2: This is her speculation. This was her
6: speculation, yes. And so she was saying like the parietal lobe, like this is where his genius might be. And... If you think about Einstein, like, everybody says, like, one of his greatest talents is, like, the way that he could manipulate shapes in his mind and, like, orient objects in his head.
10: I mean, just the the idea that space-time is curved, Mm. you know? So Mm. he has this kind of great visuospatial sense. And if you had to pick a part of your brain that could underlie mathematical abilities or visuospatial abilities— and that's parietal lobes.
6: And I was looking up these papers. You see Thomas Harvey's name as like the co-author. It oh, was like, he was
5: a co-author.
6: Yeah. He's like cited uh, in the paper. Right. And it just made my heart happy. Like he made it. He got it. Especially for Sandra Whittleson, because he all these years had been like shepherding this forward. And when that paper came out.
9: I think Tom Harvey felt then that that his work was over.
2: Because he felt at that point that, that they had spent. Pointed to something that was real
9: yes.
6: and true. He felt like finally the work that he promised to do in the very beginning was finally
9: done. And at that point, he actually decided to give the brain back to uh, Princeton Hospital in the care of Elliot Krauss, basically the pathologist who holds the same job he did when he hmm. first took that brain in 1955. What? It came full circle. You, you know, it's um, it's kind of uncanny that it's back where it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I'm just going to rain on this parade for a second. I'm happy for Mr. Harvey, but in terms of the science, maybe you convince me a little bit, or like a medium bit, but it still kind of smells like phrenology to me. I mean, it's like I, I th- listening to it. The, the experience I have is like, ooh, a Sylvian fissure. Mm-hmm. His was smaller. Yeah, and then I think to myself. The f is a Sylvian Fisher? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah. And like the fact that like we so clearly default to this fascination with a thing that
5: I don't mm-hmm. I can't even explain, it just kinda of seemed absurd. Yeah. And we know that he said that like he didn't think he was a particularly special guy. Like mm-hmm. he said uh, various there's lots of quotes from him where he talks about saying, like, I was just in the right place at the right time, or mm-hmm. I'm he just does say that really, yeah. Or you know, when he's talking about his fame, he has some quote about worrying that the packaging of him is better than the meat inside, or something <laughs> mm-hmm. like like he's a sausage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: I, I mean, this is part of the myth of him. It's like mm-hmm. I mean, he was very humble. Yeah. There's another one where he talks about like he sometimes talks about what made him special was his stubbornness that he was really obstinate and he wouldn't let things go. That's one of the only things I feel like you hear him talking about as some innate mm-hmm. characteristic of him that made him different than other people. But it, he never talks about being smart. He never talks about his brain. I mean I, I mean, I haven't read every Einstein quote, but I feel like we've been swimming around in it for a while the last few months and I haven't seen him say anything about his brain yeah. ever. Mm. But it is interesting that he says
2: he, he, he was in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which can sound kind of like humble, but also maybe it's like, if you if you take it seriously, maybe there is something to it.
5: Yeah. I mean, like, we've been talking about the neural connections inside his head, but you can also think about it a little more broadly, like about the connections outside his head. Almost as if the neurons didn't stop inside his skull, but like continued outward into the world around him. Hmm. And that's what we're going to do after a quick break.
8: Hi, this is Madeline calling from Berlin, Germany. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
0: Radiolab is supported by ZBiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. ZBiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbioticscom radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Here is a special, limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply.
5: For so many black people, the Wiz feels like home. (laughs) This is uh, G, and we are uh, we are what are we what are we doing here? We're, <laughs> That's, <hear> we're <laughs> what are we doing here, Pat? We are back from our break. <laughs> um,
2: just to reset, I was intrigued by the thing you said at the end of the last chapter that you know there are the circuits in in his head, mm-hmm. but then what about the circuits outside his head? Maybe he just got lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you thinking of when you said that?
5: Yeah, I mean, a lot of there's, there's sort of the obvious things that must be said. Einstein was building on the work of lots of other physicists, like Poincaré and Lorentz, who had been chipping away at these same questions that, that puzzled him. So there's that. But if you widen the lens a little bit and you, you start to think more broadly, you start to see some some really interesting kind of bigger forces that were at work on Einstein when he was coming up with these ideas. Like, just take special relativity, which most people would say is one of his most revolutionary ideas. Special relativity is... Special relativity, to put it like very basically, is the idea that uh, time is relative and that time slows down as you go faster. So if you're going a million miles an hour versus 10 miles an hour, time will literally slow down for you. It won't just seem slower, it will actually be slower.
2: I feel like this is the moment when um, science and common sense just parted ways. It's such a weird
5: idea. Totally. Well, that idea like came from Einstein, but also kind of came from the world around him. Hmm. Okay, so I'm going to give you a couple of really interesting examples that we came across as we were researching this. Okay. Number one.
8: I'm not an, at all an expert on the brain story. I mean, oh, I've yeah. read some of the same things that you have, but... Uh, comes from this guy. Could, could you introduce yourself? I'm... Peter Gallison, I'm a professor at Harvard University where I work on the history and philosophy of science and on
5: physics. And what Peter told us is, uh, if you look at when Einstein came up with the idea of special relativity, this was 1905. The story that's often told is Einstein was working in the patent office, just uh, sitting around all by himself, thinking big thoughts. But if you look at what was actually happening at that moment, like outside.
8: This was a transformative moment in the technological history of the world.
5: Yeah, what were were some of the big, like, hot inventions happening? Well, if you looked out the window of
8: uh, any Central European or Western European city, you would see uh, new kinds of trams being installed, electric motors. You would see uh, networks of clocks that were established. You would see... Uh, all sorts of new devices that were being invented that could send signals, the extension of the telegraph network, everything in motion, everything in
5: change. And as a consequence, he says,
8: time is has suddenly become a topic of immense
5: interest. Not just because the world seemed to be moving faster, but because for the first time in human history... You could be in several different times at once.
8: As you ran trains, say you leave Chicago at 3 p.m., when you get to a distant city, what time is it there? Do you use the time that you started with in Chicago? Do you use the time that you're arriving at in Philadelphia?
5: Who sets, what are the times? You know, before the railroad, time was local, Every town had, like, its own time. Set in each town by the local
8: jeweler who repaired and made clocks and watches.
5: But then with the railroad, you needed central time. And there were literally skirmishes over whose time would become the time. We actually did a show about this, like, a million years ago.
8: It was a big, big struggle. There were people who didn't like that at all. But suddenly the ability to traverse at a fairly high speed, hundreds, even thousands of miles, created the demand to think about what time was and how to coordinate it.
5: So that was sort of the mood of the moment. Like, just outside the window of the patent office where Einstein was sitting there thinking big thoughts. And one of the specific questions he was wrestling with was the one Peter just threw out. Like, how would you coordinate two different clocks in two different cities? A lot of people at the time thought, the way you do it is you send an electrical signal like through a telegraph wire, from one clock to the other. Calculate the amount of time it would take that signal to get from the first clock to the second clock. Then you take that minuscule amount of time and subtract it from one of the clocks, or add it to one of the clocks, and then you'd have the same time in two places. And that sort of solved the problem. But then the next thought Einstein had was, what if that signal you were using was traveling at the speed of light? And what if those two clocks, like what if one of them was moving? And if it was moving, and the light was sort of chasing it, wouldn't it take the light longer to get there? And wouldn't that, like, screw up your whole ability to coordinate time? Why am I telling you this? Because these kinds of questions, they sort of infiltrated Einstein's dreams.
4: Einstein wrote about this in his autobiography, so we have a very good idea.
5: <laughs> That's Jimena Kanalis.
4: I'm a historian of science.
5: At the University of Illinois. And she says Einstein wrote about these very particular daydreams
4: he had. He said that he imagined himself being propelled through space chasing after a light beam. Um, and, and that historians of science, uh, biographers of Einstein often agree that it was that thought of experiment of, of seeing, you know, what actually happens if I pursue a light beam that had the um, provided the the origin of his thought the theory of relativity.
5: And I'll explain why that light beam was such a big deal in a minute, but the main thing Jimena wanted to tell me about it was that it often gets explained as something that just emerged from Einstein's brain, like that was purely an original idea of his.
4: But it was not his idea at all.
5: According to Jimena, a story he read sort of led him to it. She says Einstein loved science fiction as a kid.
4: And he said he was particularly taken by, by one author. Uh, the name is Aaron Bernstein, who wrote quite a few volumes. And Einstein says that he, he read them with, quote, breathless attention.
5: And Jimenez says the story that got Einstein thinking about chasing light beams was about...
4: A faster-than-light traveler. And what happens if we travel faster than the speed of light... The
5: story sort of imagines that you could have a guy who shoots off into space and perches himself on a star, where he looks back at Earth. And what he sees isn't the same Earth he left.
4: A different world, a different universe.
5: But an earlier Earth. Because, as Bernstein explains, when we look out at anything in space, we're not seeing it exactly as it is, but rather as it was.
4: For example, when you look at the sun, You're really seeing the sun eight minutes in the past because the light waves take time to to reach you.
5: And because this traveler could travel faster than light.
4: All you needed to do, you know, if if, if you wanted to look at the earth eight minutes in the past, all you needed to do was to go to the sun. And if you jump into farther and farther uh, planets and stars, then you can choose whatever time in history you want to see.
5: So in the story, this traveler could bounce from that first star to a planet, to another star, and another, and another.
4: Quote, in one point in space, the light of the scenes of the French Revolution is just coming into view. And even farther away, the invasion of the barbarians has just become the order of the day. Alexander the Great is still conquering the world. Historical events that have long been dead for us will just be coming to life.
5: By the way, this was one of the first time travel stories in history. Which is crazy to think about. 3,000 years of human writings, and almost nobody to that point had imagined someone going back in time or going into the future. These stories that today are so much a part of movies and culture, they all basically started at the time Einstein was growing up. He just happened to be alive at that time.
4: And Jimenez says, they opened his mind. He said that these stories really prompted him to imagine himself being propelled through space, chasing after a light beam.
5: And the reason that mental image was so pivotal for Einstein was that right around the time it popped into his head, other physicists were noticing this weird thing about the speed of light. Unlike everything else in the known world, light always moved at the same speed no matter how fast you were moving relative to it. And in picturing himself riding along beside this light beam, Einstein realized that if light always moved at the same speed, if light was constant, then time must be relative. Which sort of, you know, eventually would turn our understanding of the universe upside down. So you're saying that if...
2: He hadn't been alive at a time when there are railroads which created time problems. All the while, there are people writing time travel fiction for the first time in history. All that hadn't been happening, he might not have thought the thoughts that he thunk.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I still think there was something about his brain that explains part of it. Okay. But all this other stuff, the time travel, the railroads, the stories, I would say that that adds, like, another 25%. So the brain is what, like a 20? Yeah, give the brain maybe 20. I would say 12, but that's okay. Well, let's go with 20.
2: Okay. 20 plus 25 for, so we're like roughly half. I don't know, a half. Let's say it's half. Yeah, like
5: halfway there. (laughs) In this
2: precise math that we're doing.
6: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to see if I can push us a little bit further.
2: Okay. You have another explanation. Oh, yeah. Bring it. What do you have? There's
7: a certain creative
6: conceptual. I got two. I'm going to start small.
2: Okay. Mm
6: -hmm. And the first one I spoke to this guy, Alberto Martinez. He's a historian of science. And he told me that one of the other things Einstein was reading that really blew his mind was... David Hume. The Scottish philosopher, David Hume, who had these pretty radical ideas, including that the laws of nature kind of start in our heads.
7: That the fundamental concepts of science are free creations, free inventions of the human mind.
6: Alberto says that those ideas gave Einstein permission to think his own crazy
7: thoughts. There's a letter from 1915 in which Einstein writes, This line of thought was of great influence in my efforts. Very probably, I wouldn't have reached the solution without those philosophical studies. And Einstein was kind of obsessed with them.
6: So much so. And there's a little bit of a digression. That just a couple of months before he was about to publish the theory of relativity. uh,
7: March of 1905.
6: Einstein was supposed to meet with a group of his friends to discuss some of Hume's writings, kind of like a study group. But one of the guys.
7: This guy, Maurice Solovine, he wanted to skip a meeting of their discussion group. Said he wanted to go see a violin concert or something. When Einstein and his mathematician friend Conrad Habisch, arrive
6: and find that their buddy isn't there. They
7: are pissed off, so they're so upset that they take out their cigars and they start smoking and smoking and smoking because they know Solovin hates smoking. And then they take the ashes of every cigar and what? smear them on his teapot, oh his teakettle, his, his yeah, his, his 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 table, his pillow, his pillow. They totally trash his place. Such was Einstein's
6: love of Hume.
2: I'm going to give that like a 7. I'm going to give that a 7%.
6: Okay, fine. But in terms of non-brain explanations of his genius, I'm about to give you my
7: favorite. All right, uh, here we go. Here we go.
6: So we're going to rewind a couple of years. Back before the apartment trashing, Einstein's working for the government.
7: A third class employee in the Swiss patent office. Not a great job. He's just a bureaucrat. Um, He calls himself a federal ink shitter.
6: He was in his mid-20s. He wanted to be a physicist so badly, but no one wanted to hire him. Again and
7: again, they rejected him.
6: Yet, there was one person who thought he had something special. So, Mileva Maric was Serbian. This is writer Andrej Gabor, and she says Mileva and Einstein met in college. At ETH in Zurich, the big university in Zurich, one of the few
10: places
6: where you could attend university as a woman. Mileva
7: was actually the only woman in their class. They're both in the same program for uh, preparing future science and math teachers. They become study buddies, and pretty soon, she becomes
5: his girlfriend. I long terribly for a letter from my beloved witch. I can hardly grasp that we'll be separated for so much longer. Only now do I see how frightfully much I love you. Do you know
6: anything about the early days of them as a couple? Were they, I can, I have this version in my head where it's like they were lovey-dovey, but also speaking like they were on the Big Bang Theory. Just like ridiculously scientific (laughs) conversations. Well, (laughs) you know, I think it was, I think it was both of those things. Mm.
10: They go on these hikes in the Alps, enjoy music together. It's a very romantic relationship. But it's also one that is very much based on
6: this shared love of science.
7: They're studying physics. They're reading great works in physics that Einstein... He would
6: skip class and then she would stay in class and like update him. Oh, she would take notes for him? Yeah. And they would like write these letters to each other about like these new ideas that he was reading about. I'm very curious what Kleiner will say about the two papers he better pull
0: himself together and say something reasonable.
7: This is the stuff from which his work on relativity is born. So she becomes the first person that, you know, analyzes and thinks about these things with him. She was like the first person,
6: from what I can tell, to like really engage with him as like this like weird off the beaten path kind of guy. And like support that and like love that about him. Okay. So they get married. They have kids. She leaves the science community. He continues to do his thing, Why? not very successfully. Just because she's a woman, and not always she's happens. Woman, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was just one of them had to do it. And for a long time, historians didn't think much about her. But then, you know, then these love letters, I mean, they really were a big news item. In 1986, a pile of letters between Maliva and Einstein turned up. And there was one letter, and there was one line from Einstein that kind of, like, rocked the world.
7: There's a letter from 1901 in which Einstein says... How proud will I be when we both together bring our work on the relative motion victoriously to its end? Gosh. That's what he literally says in it his panelship. Pen- our, our work, like our theory. Whoa. And
6: everyone was like, what? Like, could that, like, was she helping him on oh the my side? God. Like, it was a giving collaboration. Yeah, that's what I was all about. I was like, what? The sort of surprise at the
10: idea that this iconic genius had had a wife who maybe was his equal.
7: There's a couple of other letters in which Einstein again refers to our work, our theory. When he put them all together, it's enough to give anyone the impression, relative motion, our theory, that Einstein's literally saying that Maleva was his secret co-worker. Wow, I'm giving that a 20! But
6: before we get too excited about this, and by we, I mostly mean me,
7: need to throw in a few big butts. The the replies that we have from her do not engage the science. The letters in which he writes these to her, he doesn't specify what she herself did.
6: Alberto says, when you read the letters, you realize what he believed at the time when he wrote that letter wasn't that special. That relative motion idea they talked about in the letter, that's not relativity. And in fact, that's kind of something
7: everybody knew about at the time. Did Einstein have... The theory of relativity. When he's writing them, and then the answer is no. Hmm. He has nothing. We have multiple sources in which he says, "I had nothing." So she probably wasn't his co-conspirator,
6: but mm. she did support him at this time when everybody else was kind of rejecting him. And for that, I would like to give her some points. I'm going to say 15.
2: Based on based on what? Just because just because it makes you feel good to give her 15, or yeah, you don't? I don't
6: know, just arbitrarily, I like to pick numbers out of the sky. <laughs> Seems like yeah. that's what we're doing here. <laughs> True. Yeah,
5: I'm with Rachel here. I'm, I, I support the 15. No, right? I do too. I, I do too. Great. For real.
2: Okay. So where does that leave us? That leaves us uh, some percent for the physicists who came before, uh, 25-ish percent for time and place, 7% Hume, 15% Maleva.
5: Yeah, that doesn't get us all the way there. No, I, I know. Um, so we decided to call one other person to see if we get like a fifth thing,
3: because why not? Well, I have an answer, and and uh, I, think, I think there are, there are many.
5: This dis- is Brian Green, physicist, professor at Columbia. He has written so much about Einstein. He's written about Einstein in his best-selling books. He's talked about him on television specials. He has a play about Einstein. He has written about all the ways Einstein has impacted the world, and all the ways the world impacted Einstein. But surprisingly, when we asked him about this, he brought it back to the brain. I have to say, if
3: I was in the shoes of the pathologist at the time, I may have absconded with his brain as well. His basic point is, yeah, there was the railroads and the
5: time travel fiction, and there was Hume. Confluence of so many different features. All but those things were around for everybody. Somehow, all of them came together in this one brain in a way that was different. Somewhere in the
3: collection of atoms and molecules in the brain that we call Albert Einstein is the answer to why Albert Einstein was Albert Einstein.
5: Whether you think there was something innate about it, like Einstein was born with some special mental equipment, or you think it had more to do with his environment, Brian says in the end, it doesn't really matter. Because everything you experience rewrites your biology. It etches itself into you. And so when you look at a brain, you're not just looking at a structure. You are, according to Brian, in some fundamental way, looking at the life that person lived. Yeah, every genius thought,
3: every deep insight, every pattern recognized happened inside that gloppy gray three or four pound structure. That's all there is. Whatever set him apart, Brian says, is in there somewhere. And if we had the capacity to lay out every single circuit and every single influence that could cascade through that brain, if we were able to fully understand all the electrical signals and crackles that would go through that brain, yes, I believe that we would fully understand Einstein's process and understand how it was that he was able to do what he did. We can't do that yet.
10: Well, um, there's a lot of interest in this concept that the structure of the brain is going to tell you something about the function.
5: That's neurologist Fred Lepore, who we heard from earlier. And he says people are trying, not so much with Einstein's brain anymore. But he says there's this whole exploding area of neuroscience where researchers are trying to describe the brain at the level of detail Brian's describing.
10: That's funded to the tune of $4.5 billion.
5: He told us about one guy who's doing this, just about a mile from where Einstein lived.
10: There's a uh, Princeton University professor, Sebastian Sung. And what he does is he takes a cubic millimeter, a cubic millimeter of mouse retina, that's neural tissue. It's not brain, but it's it's neural tissue. Mm-hmm. And he slices this into these vanishingly thin sections, and then he tries to trace the axons, the dendrites, the neurons, the astrocytes, the oligodendroglia, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. It can take months. It can take months to do a cubic millimeter. And then you've got to have some kind of um, software that can analyze to see if the structure can lead you to some kind of conclusion about circuitry, right. which might get you to function. Might get you to function.
5: Like, why not definitely? Like, if that doesn't get you to function, then what would? What, what, would, be, what would be left out if we could map perfectly the structure of all the connections?
10: Well, you're talking like me. You're talking like a—see, a, a, I'm by default, I'm a neurologist. I'm a materialist. They call me a materialist because I'm saying, well, the left side of the brain has something to do with the right arm and speech. That's that's called materialism. But there's another school of thought, and that's called dualism, uh-huh. which is somehow mind, consciousness, spirit, soul—you p- pick out the noun you want there—is separate— from the
5: physical substrate of the brain. Huh, how would that be science though? Cause isn't, I mean, I can imagine a school of thought which allows for that, but but it feels like you're, you're very quickly stepping out of science if you go that way.
10: Well, yes, yes, okay, The probably you know, see we're all brought up on this thing. When you read anything in the popular press about the brain, they'll show you functional neuroimaging. So when someone talks the 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 Broca's area, the speech area on the left side of the brain lights up, and you go, well, there's your answer. That, that that's the structure. It lights up. That's what's creating language. Except when you deal with the neurophilosophers, they say, well, we got one problem with that. It's called the hard problem. If you look at that chunk of brain that you're calling Broca's area that lights up when you talk, what exactly is happening there? How does that create? How does that create a word? Or if you're looking at the occipital lobe and you're looking at the color red, how do you create that qualia, which is a fancy way of saying the sensation of color? We can show you where it is happening. We just can't show you how. We're all looking at the same thing. We're saying somehow if we could get a better handle on the anatomy, maybe we can explain a thought. But we can't explain a thought. I mean, forget... forget relativity, we can't explain a thought yet.
3: Followed from the special theory of relativity that mass and energy are food, are but different manifestations of the same thing. A somewhat unfamiliar conception for the average mind.
5: This episode was reported by Rachel Cusick and me and produced by Bethel Hobte, Rachel and me, and Jad Abumrad. Music by Alex Oberington. Fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Dustin O'Halloran, Tim Hewson, Simon Adler, and Minute Physics. Radiolabs G is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. We'll be back in two weeks with episode four, of G.
7: To play the message, press two. Start of message. This is Alberto Martinez in Austin, Texas. Radio Lab was created by Jab Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel hapti Tracy Hunt, Nora Keller, Matt Kielty, Robert Krulwich, Annie McEwen, Latisse Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Sarah Carey, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Olyai, Audrey Quinn, H. Harry Fortuna, Ruth Samuel, Imani Leonard, and Neil Danisha. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Thank you very much. End of message. NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more.